Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. Last night, there were a lot of Americans who were doing that whole political version of the March Madness thing. You know, the one where you catch the last few minutes of UNC Wilmington as they're about to beat Duke? Well, that was John Kasich last night as he pulled a kind of upset on his home court in Ohio. As he addressed his supporters, he sounded kind of like Gene Hackman in Hoosiers. You know, we're all part of a giant mosaic, a snapshot in time, all of us here. And it is our job as Americans... Our job as people who want to be decent and live good lives is to dig down and understand that purpose and never underestimate our ability to change the world in which we live. But in the end, last night was, as they say, chalk. After all the excitement, it looks like it's Kentucky versus Kansas or Clinton versus Trump. We are moving closer to securing the Democratic Party nomination and winning this election in November. We're going to go forward, and we're going to win, but more importantly, we're going to win for the country. We're going to win, 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 and we're not stopping. We're going to have great victories for our country. (laughs) Today, where we live, it's the Wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable. We will stop the basketball metaphors there, but we will consider what Colin McEnroe is calling the gloom ball effect, a sense of pervasive hopelessness in our little state. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Again, 860-275-7266. Comment on our website, wnpr.org. Slash where we live. You can always find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Joining us as always is Colin McEnroe, the host of the Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. Hello once again, Colin. Good morning, Mr. Dankowski. Joining us is Bill Curry. He's our Democratic political analyst and a columnist for Salon.com. Thank you so much, Bill. Glad to be here. Now, Bill's usual co-pilot in, in this seat is Kalila Brown-Dean, but she sent us a note that she's headed to Mississippi to accept the Fannie Lou Hamer Award for Outstanding Community Service. So congratulations to our friend Kalila Brown-Dean from Quinnipiac University. That's why she's not here with you today, Bill. She is the best, and um, sh- this is a very well-deserved honor. It is a very well-deserved honor, but in her stead, we have a really uh, excellent person who we haven't had yet in the wheelhouse, and we're very excited to have her here. Suzanne Bates is Policy Director at the Yankee Institute for Public Policy and a columnist at ctnewsjunkie.com. Thanks so much for coming in, Suzanne. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. So first of all, let's start off on the Republican side. Um, The bigger news was not so much who won, but who lost. We heard at the beginning of the program uh, from Marco Rubio, who had suspended his campaign after losing his home state of Florida. Uh, Donald Trump lost in the winner-take-all state of Ohio to Governor John Kasich, but otherwise a big night for Donald Trump. Uh, Your big takeaways from last night, Colin? Well, I mean, if I had any confidence anymore in the ability of people like me and other members of the press to predict predict things correctly, I would probably say more. But I mean, just I mean, looking once again at the math of this, it's now starting to look as though neither Donald Trump nor nor anybody else can get the requisite number of votes to seal up uh, a convention. I guess maybe one of the things that maybe my takeaway is. If I were Cleveland, I would be bracing for 
you know, a pretty hot July. And, and you know, now what we've seen is there are elements within factions within the, the Trump support base that, you know, don't like it when things go, don't go their way and even don't seem that happy when things do go their way. Um, it's been a long time since we've had a convention that had a lot of unrest out in the streets. But, uh, you know, a brokered convention or, or a convention that's sort of competitive in the way that conventions used to be, plus that element of, you know, very unhappy and sometimes violent people. Um, if I were Cleveland, I'd be getting a little nervous. You, you know, the only uh, problem with that, Colin, really is is that Chicago makes makes for a very lyrical song title. It's kind of hard for Graham Nash to write a song about Cleveland, isn't it? I mean, well, uh, Randy, Randy, Randy Newman, Newman already Randy did. Randy Newman yeah. did a nice but job. It was about the river. So. City of magic, city of life. <laughs> Burn on big river. Oh, well, here, here's but Donald. They cleaned up the waterfront. <laughs> they, they did indeed That's clean right. the they, waterfront. The Cuyahoga caught fire. In part because of Randy Newman. <laughs> Last night, uh, Donald Trump said, though, he wants to bring the Republican Party together. We have something happening that actually makes the Republican Party probably the biggest political story anywhere in the world. Okay, that's something that's happening, Suzanne. What is that something that's happening? Because the Republican Party might be the biggest story in the world right now, but it's maybe the biggest story for some reasons that uh, a lot of people in the Republican Party aren't so happy about. There's a real schism in the Republican Party right now. There, you know, I, I was watching the exit polls out of Florida, and half of the Republican voters said that they may not vote for the eventual nominee if it's Donald Trump. So you've got half the voters who are supporting Donald Trump and half the voters who say they might never vote for Donald Trump. So there is, you know, there is a, a real break in the party. And um, I think that's causing people some consternation. Well, and of course, last night, you know, big night in Ohio for John Kasich, kind of this morning in America speech. You know, everyone's going to get along. It's a whole different view of the Republican Party. I mean, is that a substantial enough part, Suzanne, of the Republican Party in 2016 to keep uh, if the math works out the right way, keep Donald Trump from actually getting the nomination. I think John Kasich has some the ability to pull some votes, especially in the Northeast, um, away from Donald Trump, maybe away from Ted Cruz. Um, but I don't think that his message is resonating with the majority of people. Now, it's not just Republicans. We're seeing huge turnout, a huge turnout in Republican primaries, especially compared to the Democratic primaries. And you know, it's not just Republicans who are voting. It's it's moderates, it's independents, it's Democrats who are turning out to vote for Donald Trump, which is confusing to some of us, you know, but he has struck a nerve. I think, you know, remember after eight years of President George W. Bush, how Democrats felt. Well, now after eight years of President Obama, I think there are a lot of Republicans who are frustrated. And so uh, I think we're seeing a, a backlash to those eight years. Bill? I thought uh, I, I was struck by the Rubio uh, concession speech last night after uh, after the Republican establishment had poured millions of dollars into his race. Uh, it, I, it was the first time I ever saw a candidate throw his own donors under the bus. Uh, uh, and he was so anxious to disassociate himself from the establishment that had been hoping he would be their horse uh, because he sees the, 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 the phenomenon that Sin's talking about is just being so powerful right now. And he, he'd like to finally get on the right side of it. I was most struck by a couple of things. First of all, Ohio could have made an enormous amount of history last night. If, it, if Trump and Sanders had won Ohio, Trump would have consolidated the Republican nomination, and Hillary would have gone from uh, front-runner to toss-up uh, because she'd be looking at 10 straight states in which the demographics faced Sanders and would have lost much of the industrial Midwest. It would have, she'd still had a slight lead, but it, but it would have changed everything. Instead, uh, nothing changed on either side. Each one content, continues to ground out the short yardage in what appears to be a little bit more inevitable uh, a road than I think Colin thinks they're on. These winner-take-all rules, the, rules on the Republican side, I think, you know, get, get Trump awfully close to that magic number. 
what struck me out, the other thing that struck me was that we were kind of looking to see whether all the violence of those Trump rallies over the weekend were going to do anything uh, to his vote in, the, in, the, in, the, in, the, uh, in those Republican primaries. And you can't say for sure, but, but, but on the whole, it seems like the sight of that meant almost nothing to the Republican base. I, I caught the same numbers that, that, that you did, that half that says they can't vote for him. Trump's negatives among non-Republicans have only risen. He's the only candidate Hillary can beat for sure, and she's the only candidate he has any chance of beating, and they're headed for a showdown. Well, and what do you make of all the violence that the, the media has been obsessed with this, this notion? As Bill th- said, Suzanne, I think he's, he's quite right about this. Probably all that site meant absolutely nothing to anybody who came out to any polling place in any of those states. I could be wrong about that. But what do you make of what has become of the Trump rallies and some of the Trump press conferences over the course of the last week and a half? I think that people on the left and the right are getting two different pictures from these Trump rallies. And I think they're coming away with very different takeaways. I think the people on the left are seeing, you know, the violence at the Trump rallies and they're kind of horrified by it. I think people on the right are seeing um, these huge demonstrations that are trying to shut down speech. You know, I think a lot of um, conservatives are concerned. The last, you know, eight years we've had some issues with um, people on the left trying to shut down people who they don't like um, from saying anything. And I think that that is what they're seeing with Donald Trump. They, they don't see people who are just trying to disrupt the rally. They're, they are seeing people who are trying to stop him from talking. And that's upsetting. Although the numbers, the numbers you point out suggest that a lot of Republicans do see that half that aren't sure, sure. they're going to vote for him. It's not just the left that looks at those rallies that, uh, and, and, and sees what I described. Unaffiliated voters overwhelmingly. The, 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 the outside of the Republican base those stories Trump talks about, what the world's talking about is what it regards as the specter of neo-fascism. Those stories, if, if all publicity is good publicity, Trump's doing fine. But those stories that are being written around the world right now and, what, and, the, and the image going out to the American people, you know, it, it's good news for every Democratic legislator in Connecticut. A quick response? Well, I, I don't think – I think people – even people who don't support Donald Trump and I, you know – follow a lot of people who don't support Donald Trump on the right. But even they are discouraged when they see people trying to shut down speech. And I think that this is something that it's not just, you know, Trump rallies. It's speeches at at universities. It's I mean, there's been sort of a pattern, you know, of the left trying to shut down people who are conservative from speaking. And so I think that, you know, a lot of people, not just Trump supporters, see what's going on at the Trump rallies and are disturbed by it. Colin? Still, I think we have to sort of say this is a bit of a jumping off point. I mean, certainly there are frequently demonstrations by people uh, at rallies or appearances of politicians that they don't like. And that's happened to President Obama an awful lot over his term. Um, often some of these people are escorted out or, I mean, the sort of the punching, the kicking, you know, and the guy standing up there at the podium saying, I'd like to punch that guy in the face or in the old days we could have sent you out on a stretcher. This is all new. I've never seen a politician, Republican or Democrat in my lifetime, say those kinds of things while his followers were doing those kinds of things. So we are on new ground. I, I totally agree that 
that Trump supporters and Trump have every right to have a rally where they get to hear him. He gets to say what he wants to say. There's a minimal amount uh, of yelling and screaming, from, and maybe even ideally none, from people who don't agree. Uh, but uh, but what's been happening, kind of, to me, has moved beyond the pale. There's We're, we're, we're entering a, a new era here. I will also just quickly say that poor Marco Rubio last night, who was trying to give his concession speech, was heckled by apparently a Trump supporter uh, at the beginning beginning of the speech, and I'm thinking, how depraved are you when you crash somebody's concession speech <laughs> to so that, you, so that you can yell at him? <laughs> He's trying to get out of the race, <laughs> and there's still some guy going, <laughs> Well, let, let's turn quickly to the Democratic side. Hillary Clinton swept uh, the five states um, that uh, were contested last night, but her opponent, Bernie Sanders, has kept a positive tone. The reason that we have defied all expectations is that we are doing something very radical in American politics. We're telling the truth. So Bernie Sanders, uh, Bill, still telling the truth, but last night, not a good uh, night for him or his supporters. Is Bernie Sanders done now? Um, uh, Again, as as Lawrence of Arabia told Ali in the desert, nothing is written. And we don't know what story breaks tomorrow, what change breaks tomorrow. Uh, as I said at the outset, I think that both these front runners now are on 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 very uh, you know strong uh, strong paths. Let me say this though: uh, it, this would be a good time for Bernie to stop using the word revolution and start using the word movement. And what he, what what progressives who are uns- dissatisfied with public corruption, with trade, universal health care, living wage, Mideast ground wars, there are many many issues that separate party elites from the party base. And what's disappeared in this country, we used to have strong progressive movements, the women's civil rights, peace, environmental movements that weren't just colonies of a political party, that were there to bring pressure for change and that brought enormous change. And uh, Bernie's revolution and this election might not be on the same calendar, but both these party elites are under assault. What we've learned in the last couple of months is that none of this is going away. The, The fundamental alignment of both parties and their, and their addiction at the top to the same policies based on pay-to-play politics. That, to me, is what is at the heart of this revolution that's going on, whether it's the Trump revolution, uh, which uh, I find to be extreme and right-wing and sometimes violent, or Bernie's uh, democratic socialist uh, revolution. They're both, they both actually capture, from their various perspectives, what the center's feeling about an establishment that they feel has failed. Uh, Suzanne, what, what's your thoughts on that? I I would agree with that assessment in terms of, um, you know, frustration with the establishment. I think it doesn't just affect the establishment and the parties, though. I think what we're seeing, especially on the right, is frustration with establishment in the media, establishment, I mean, across the board, you know, in academia. Um, There's just a real frustration in general with the way the world is set up and people feel like it's not – you know, it's not working out for them. But uh, that frustration on the Republican side or on the conservative side, it, is it coalescing around one thing? I mean, we saw so many Republican candidates come out at the beginning, and there were evangelicals, and there was the Rand Paul libertarian wing, and there were people who you couldn't quite pin down. And then there's John Kasich, you know, a guy who talks about being a good manager in Ohio and someone who's done the job in, in Congress. And it seems as though there's not one through line of what the Republican Party can coalesce around right now. I mean, do you, do you see some themes emerging after all this or what is the what is the big theme? So the people who I know who support Donald Trump, I think probably the the thing that frustrates the most about the establishment is this lack of like authenticity. They feel like you don't sound like me. You don't think like me. Um, 
you know, but Donald Trump sounds like me. He he's someone who he's like a reality TV show candidate. You know, the the punching and the kicking. I don't think it sounds real to people because I think they see so much of that, like on the survivor type TV shows that, you know, when a candidate says it, it's not as shocking as it would have been 20, 30 years ago before this reality TV phenomenon. You know, and, and I think that they're. He just sounds so authentic. Well, and actually, I think the the, the great Connecticut uh, writer Jelani Cobb from University of Connecticut had written about this last week, and and he said, you know, people are comparing uh, Donald Trump to to Mussolini or Hitler. He said he's Archie Bunker. He's he's every man. He's saying the thing that the guy in the couch who throws his shoe at the television because he's so upset says all the time. I mean, is that who Donald Trump is? Is he, is he the Archie Bunker candidate? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I'd particularly choose that that image, but first of all, let's just sort of back up. One point that Bill has made that I think is true is that, you know, the Republican process here has been more small d democratic than the democratic process. That Say what you want about the, <laughs> the results that may be coming out of the pipeline. They put a whole bunch of candidates out there. They had a lot of debates. Everybody got to say what they wanted to say. Uh, and as voters sorted all this through, I mean, as opposed to the Democrats where there was you know, this attempt really to control the process, limit the number debates, make sure that they were up against, you know, the season finale of Downton Abbey or something so nobody would watch them. So, um, you know, so they've had this process and they've had a chance to hear everybody. And, and you know, most of the candidates have kind of um, uh, thematic and, and policy-driven arguments against government or, or, in other words, most of them have um, an ideological thrust that's underpinned by some understanding of what they want the government to do or be. And, and I mean, you can argue about whether they're, that's, that could happen or not, but that's the argument that they're making, that it's a little bit more issue-specific. Whereas Trump, I think, does have this, I don't know, one of the emails I called it mythopoeic, you know, this kind of sense that there's something fallen or ruined. There's this Edenic kind of taint uh, on the republic right now that, that he feels as though he could probably scrub away. And I, I think Suzanne's right. It's a, a lot of it's sort of how he talks. He 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 talks the way that regular people talk. Last night, as he came out to give his victory speech, he did his usual thing. He appeared to have no notes whatsoever. He he sounded like to me like a Batman villain with ADD or something. He would like start one thing and then veer off in another direction, and then miraculously find his way back to his original point. Uh, and at the end, he started talking about disgusting people and lies and deceit, which is not usually what you mention in your victory speech. You're usually pretty happy uh, when you've won. Uh, but somehow or other, all of that works. And, and I think the more issue-specific you get, the more you're penalized in this race, right? The more, the more that you have a real concrete set of ideas about what you want to do, the more you're penalized in the Republican field. They like the fact that Trump isn't saying something so specific. He's say, making a, a general critique and a general promise. Does that sound right to you? That sounds right to me. I think people are frustrated because they keep hearing all these policy promises during campaigns. And then really, I mean, we know in Washington, it's very hard to actually get any of these things done, especially in their purest form. You know, so so they just don't believe it anymore. And when you listen to them side by side, you listen to Donald Trump and you listen to John Kasich or Marco Rubio on some of the debates. I mean, the the canned lines really do sound so canned. Well, and, and you're absolutely right. And I think this is something that Washington really has to grapple with is John Kasich may sound very reasonable to a lot of people in America who don't want to have someone just blustering and throwing out insults all the time. But at the end of the day, some of the least realistic things that are being said on Republican campaign trails are coming from John Kasich. Like, we're all going to get together. We're going to work together in Washington to, across aisles. That's exactly what's not going <laughs> going to happen in the next four years, Bill. Yeah, that's that's 
I mean, that's not going to happen no matter what. Uh, the American people have never been into bipartisanship. Uh, they're into nonpartisanship. When they say bipartisan, they simply mean civil, respectful, and substantive. They don't care where the votes come from for one uh, 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 bill or another. And, and, and I actually think that this is, has to be a battle you have to win. Uh, if Democrats want to run the country, they have to win at least the Senate and at least narrow the vote in, in the House. What Trump represents, uh, I just wanted to say one thing. One of the problems with, for the media covering Trump is that the things that we see about him uh, are so hard uh, and, uh, uh, to discuss in polite society. This, is, this isn't Archie Bunker. This is closer to Mussolini. When you threaten to use the courts like Putin does to, throw, to shut down the press, when you, when you encourage violence at rallies, when you base all of your politics on the villainiz- villainization of, of people from other countries or people of other religions, all these themes, what, what fascism is historically is ideologically nondescript. You can have left and right issues just as Trump does, just as all, all the great ones did. I don't mean to compare him, you know, uh, in precisely in that way, but there, but, 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 but there is an ugliness to what's happening here, which, by the way, the Democrats can take their fair share of responsibility for. Pay-to-play politics in both parties has helped create a permanent underclass. Their frustrations are enormous, uh, and, uh, and, and this fight will not be over until one side or the other uh, finds a way to, to deal with them constructively. Uh, yeah, I, I actually go ahead, Colin. You know, I, just uh, before we run out of time in this uh, segment, I, I'd love to get. Uh, Suzanne talks to different people than than I usually get to talk to. You. And my my closest Republican friend was a big big Jeb Bush supporter uh, here in Connecticut. I'm wondering how you see Connecticut on April 26th or 27th, whatever that date 26th, is. 26th, I think. 26th. Uh, I know it's uh, Melania Trump's birthday, also that day. But I mean, how do you see? So you'll be you, busy. Yeah, you, <laughs> you talk to a lot of Republicans. I mean, is there a discernible Trump movement and organization that's forming in, in Connecticut? Is there a cruise? Or, I mean, what's going to happen on, in that primary? Well, I, I, think, I think Trump will probably do well in Connecticut. That's what all the polls look like. Now, most of the Republicans that I talk to and that I'm close friends with are not Trump supporters. Most of them are policy wonks. And so, you know, like you said, Trump <laughs> is not a policy guy. No. And for those of us who care about policy, we are a little disturbed by some of the things that he has had to say. And so... Um, you know, but but I, you know, a lot of the people who I talk to who are not policy wonks and are conservative, you know, like that he's kind of a fighter, you know, and they feel like no one's been willing to stand up to the Democrats in Washington on some of these issues where they, you know, like the IR, IRS scandal that that's been really deeply disturbing to a lot of Republicans, things like that. And they feel like no one has really stood up for them in Washington. They feel like Trump is going to go there and and, you know. And abolish the IRS, and that's it's part part of the issue from a policy yeah. wonk standpoint. Yeah. Is is wow. we've got a scandal. Let's get rid of the Boy, IRS. They're going to be and, disappointed. And, and so, so how do Republicans like yourself, who are looking for policies, for looking or looking for policy solutions? I mean, where do you go? What do you do? This is why I think there's been this talk of a third candidate. You know, I mean, a lot of this never Trump hashtag. I don't know if you're seeing it. It's mm-hmm. it's all over my Twitter feed. You know, people are are really worried about Donald Trump, especially in terms of his policies. So there's a lot of people who are are calling for a third candidate that they can support. 
Um, we're talking today in the wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable, with uh, Suzanne Bates, who's policy director of the Yankee Institute for Public Policy, also a columnist for ctnewsjunkie.com, Bill Curry, who's a political analyst and columnist for Salon.com, and Colin McEnroe from The Colin McEnroe Show. When we come back, we're going to turn to some state politics and find out what's going on with the state budget. The governor wants to cut a bunch of jobs. I'm sure he doesn't want to, but I think he feels like he has to. Republicans are saying, not so fast. We'll be talking about that when we come back in the wheelhouse where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Join us next Tuesday night for a conversation about university foundations and freedom of information. We will explore whether the Yukon Foundation, the fundraising arm of Connecticut's flagship university, should be more forthcoming with information about how they raise and spend their money. It's a debate that's made its way to the legislature in recent years, which is considered overturning state law that made the foundation an exempt institution from state freedom of information laws. So that's coming up on March 22nd, 6.30 p.m. at the Lyceum in Hartford. If you'd like more information, go to our Facebook page. Today it's the Wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable. We're joined by Bill Curry, who is a columnist for Salon.com, Suzanne Bates, who's policy director at the Yankee Institute for Public Policy, and our own Colin McEnroe. Hey, Colin, what's on your show today at 1? Well, uh, fittingly, I, I think, anyway, we're doing a show about leadership. In fact, uh, the way that uh, Americans crave and, and have an idea that they can get a leader who will solve their problems, which isn't really in our historical DNA, too. If you go back and look at the founding of the republic, it's much more about sort of reining in leaders and making sure people didn't get too much power. And, and so, but, but if you sort of look at the way we think now, it's, it's much more, uh, there's a craving for somebody who can kind of take over, which used to be, I mean, the whole idea of having somebody take over was like the whole point of America, not letting that happen. You don't really want that to happen. <laughs> I guess it's no accident that you had a basketball show and a leadership show coming up. Up, right. And you had me on for the basketball show. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. The show's <laughs> produced by Betsy Kaplan. She's, yeah. she's my leader. I don't yeah. ask any questions. <laughs> I'm like a sheep. That's I just follow. I just, could I yeah, also just please. say, I'm sure Suzanne Bates would like you to ask at the um, at the FOI uh, UConn Foundation Forum how the UConn Foundation came to pay $250,000 to Hillary Clinton to speak, speak at UConn. That's, they, that came from the foundation, right? Yeah. They, they, yes, they, 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 there is a chance that I might just ask about that very thing. I bet it'll come up somehow. Again, again it's coming up on Tuesday night. It may just come up. Speaking of which, I forgot to say, Hillary Clinton has announced she is coming to Connecticut, not to you know give a, a big speech or anything, but she's going to be coming to the Litchfield County town of Roxbury, uh, where there are an awful lot of uh, very famous and rich people, and she's going to be raising some money. Richard Blumenthal, Chris Murphy, and Elizabeth Esty will be there, along with some luminaries. She's coming on Friday to raise money in Connecticut. Well, let's turn to leadership at the state level. Um, yeah. Fewer stones are being left unturned as we look for money uh, to find uh, out how to fill this big budget hole. Hearst, Connecticut's Neil Vigder reports that the Malloy administration wants to cancel $385 million in bonds. Some of that money would repurpose more than $2 million to rebuild the Sandy Hook Elementary School. Oh, my goodness. So when we're talking about maybe money going away from the Sandy Hook rebuild, it, it does seem as though, Colin, we have uh, dire times right now at the state budget. The Malloy administration has sent layoff warnings to nearly 70 percent of the workforce. Senate Republican leader Len Fasano is proposing furlough days to avoid layoffs. There is a little bit of seemingly a leadership battle or maybe a handing around of the football in, in terms of who's going to be holding it when all these bad things come down. Right. And I, I don't know. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to say about this um, <laughs> other than, I mean, it's sort of a leadership battle that's happening. Like who is going to be in control of a balloon that a hot air balloon that's not only sinking but like kind of scraping little mountain tops and peaks as it goes along and 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 so I mean it's sort of maybe the wrong time to be having not the leadership battle but the how do we do this battle like what's I mean maybe it, what I'm trying to say here is it's something that I've said a lot which is the last few budget cycles have lacked 
an overarching strategy. Uh, we're going to do this kind of thing, but we're not going to do this kind of thing. You know, we're we're going to we're going to seek revenues here, but not here. We're going to make cuts here, but not here. This is the overall game plan. And although there will be outliers, we're going to try to make most of our decisions fit into that game plan. If you talk to state legislators, they will tell you that kind of message has been very absent the last few cycles. I mean, Bill would probably say that there's never really that much of a game plan, but but I, there's been less of one than there has been before. So now what you have is a crisis situation, right? This isn't really a time when you, I mean, what you're seeing, what you just described is a situation where things that might have fallen into the hands-off category, nobody's touching this. You certainly, you, you, you can cut all you want. You can't cut Sandy Hook school money. You know, I mean, that's just not the case anymore because there's just a kitchen fire and people are running around spraying flame retardant <laughs> and anything else they can find to put it out. But, but Bill, I mean, when we see this big hole right now and we see different ways to, to attempt to fill it, we're hearing from Republicans, hey, we don't have to lay off a whole bunch of state workers. Um, it sort of gets to this overarching theme thing that, that Colin's been talking about. I know Suzanne will probably want to jump in on this. There is a question about the size and the scope of state government and whether or not it's sustainable in the way that we have built it right now. The, those chickens, as it were, seem to be coming home to roost in a um, a budget deficit that never goes away. It continues to expand in this fiscal year. It is expanding in out years. I mean, what do we do about it, either short term or long term? Does it require the layoffs of thousands of state workers and a, and a resetting of the clock somehow? I mean, what do we need to do? It shouldn't and it needn't even in this kind of environment. But I'll just make a couple of observations, one of which is that it goes back to Malloy's first budget, which really was the, uh, uh, in a sense, the original sin of his administration. And uh, there needed to be a much greater attempt then to deal with pensions, uh, with some of the abuses. Uh, when you're piling up uh, uh, overtime, uh, uh, you know, overtime at the end of your tenure to, to, to earn more in, in retirement than you did uh, when you're employed, uh, people don't understand that when you had you know, longevity payments being paid out. There were a set of things that on their face didn't look right. And as someone who wants to defend the rights of workers to pensions and wants them to have stable uh, employment, uh, uh, there were changes we needed to make. And I think that Malloy, having been actually kind of a new Democrat in some ways and a very anti-union Democrat, the only public official in the state that the AFL ever did a sustained job action against, came in and decided it was in his business it was it was in his best interest to make a different deal. He also dropped a lot of things that were crucial to me, and one of which was uh, 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 reform of uh, of ethics and strengthening ethics so that, that you could get whatever legitimate savings there are there, and most importantly health care reform. And soon after running, he reversed his position on opening up the state employee health care plan and making changes there. He cut a deal with the insurers, similar to the deal Democrats cut over Obamacare, uh, uh, so, that, so that you're paying a fortune. Half his first deficit was due to a deal Roland cut to leave us overpaying for insurance uh, 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 back then. So there, and health care is by far the biggest part of this budget. You, you, it's not all waste, fraud, and abuse. The biggest thing is health care. And so you have, you have all these major issues that were never dealt with, and they've brought us to this place. Secondly, I think that it is partly economic development, and if we had a different set of economic development policies, we, we also promised back in that election that we were going to give up the bribe outside corporations to come here approach to economic development and really focus on developing small businesses and helping local banks, getting credit, getting development, bringing down property taxes – all those things that could give us really grow our garden, we haven't done. And so we're in a tough place now. Suzanne? 
Yeah, I agree with the pension assessment. Absolutely. I think, um, you know, we we have a website called ctsunlight.org at Yankee Institute, and we put out, you know, all the pensions, and there are 800 pensions that are over $100,000 and several over $200,000. I don't think that's what public pensions were meant to be. But when you wrap in overtime and some of these other things, you know, our pension our pensions are the largest in the nation. Um, and our debt is huge and it's a such it's such a drag on the economy when you look at the parts of the budget that are growing the fastest almost all of them have to do with state employee compensation healthcare retiree healthcare is growing at 10% a year i mean when those things are growing so fast it's going to crowd out everything else in the budget. And but, but, but but of course the the ability to actually substantively change those things that we've agreed to anywhere close to the near term while we have these big uh, deficits. I mean, it's really almost impossible. The governor has put out a few plans, Suzanne, that say, you know, here's how we might rejigger things so that we're going to be paying out something different for pensions and people in different classes over the years. But at the end of the day, we're not going to solve the near-term problem of pensions because, I mean, there's so much built-up costs. We can't do anything about it. The pension debt, that's true. That's yeah. gonna. That's a long-term fix. I, has anyone asked the state employees if they're willing to open? I mean, I know the unions say no. You know, but I mean, when I talk to people who are state employees and say, would you be willing to pay more for your health care? Would you be willing to cap your pension? Would you be willing to take overtime payments out of your pension? A lot of them say yes. And I feel like, you know, have we even asked them, would you rather have massive layoffs or pay more for your health care? But, but that, what do you what do you say when you hear, you know, Republican leadership saying we don't have to have massive layoffs? We can we can do this with furlough days. I mean, at, at a certain point. Isn't the size of state government just going to have to change? Absolutely. I do think we're going to need some layoffs. But I think and I do think as well that Senator Fasano might be talking about the near term, at least from the budget that they released this week. It looks like they're calling for furlough days rather than layoffs to help the two hundred twenty exactly million dollar deficit. You know, in this fiscal but, but year. I guess what I'm saying is just just from a from a foundational standpoint of, of how we're going to solve our problems, as, as Colin was saying before, we're at this inflection point where maybe maybe we need to figure out what are we going to do. We're going to incentivize this over that. And if we're ever going to get to the point where, and many people say, the size of state government is just too large, might this time of crisis – Bill's friend Rahm Emanuel always talks about never let a good crisis go to waste um, – might this time of crisis be a time to say, okay – there's a lot of things that have to change. One of them is the size of the state workforce. Yes, we absolutely need to look at the size of the state workforce. But I also think we have to look at the cost of the state workforce because you can afford a bigger state workforce if it's not as expensive. Colin? I actually agree with Suzanne. Um, I mean, I don't mean to sound surprised. But um, <laughs> but no, I, I, one of the things that I've been saying straight along is that – and it's sort of too late to do this, but maybe it's never too late and maybe you're right. Maybe crises create these opportunities that, that really what needed to happen way back at the beginning of the first Malloy term was a blue ribbon panel or something like that on, on state compensation, on state worker compensation, looking at the entire picture, um, seeing which things are out of whack with n- national best practices in terms of wh- whether it's the funding of pensions, health care for workers – uh, or salary. I mean, I think salary needs to be needed to be looked at as well. And and I think also the state employees do have to um, face up to the kind of lady or the tiger dilemma, which is you know exactly as Suzanne expressed it. Would you be willing to talk about those reforms in lieu of layoffs? I feel like it's too late now. It's I think that conversation 
you know, needed to happen a long time ago. And I think we are going to be looking at layoffs. I, anytime I've looked at the size of the state workforce, um, tried to compare it against others, it doesn't look like a really big state workforce. It doesn't look like there's – is it a big state workforce? No, no it's no, not. It isn't. And, so, it, it, and so why does it cost so much? Why can't we afford it? I have to assume it's in these other areas. And I, to me – I would have liked to see somebody go under the hood for real about that in the first six months of the Malay first administration. The, 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 again, that was the original sin, not to deal with a lot of these systemic issues when they got there. And, but, but, but let me just say – let me just distinguish my position for a little, <laughs> a little bit. And that is – I don't have – Because friends. Suzanne agreed with you too readily? No, yeah, I'm yeah, it was, <laughs> Suddenly, I, 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 I thought, what in God's name is going on here? Yeah, we thought having somebody <laughs> from the Yankee Policy Institute was really going right. to shake this show up a little bit, and, and it's and, not. Uh, and and – uh, and, and, and the fact, but but a couple of things. First, first of all, and I don't have fresh numbers on this, but the last time I was running for governor, which was a hundred years ago, I made a point of letting people know how small the median state pension was and how little we actually pay out to most uh, most of these people. And that when you combine their pensions and their social securities, they were making in the forties. The ones who were lucky enough uh, in their retirements, and I do not want to be part of a movement to drive down the retirement incomes. People have lost the equity in their homes. They've lost private pensions. We, the greatest achievement of the last generation, in some ways, of the Roosevelt generation, was to lift the elderly out of poverty across the board. And, and, and we may lose that. At the same time, what I said to begin with, and that is that some of the high-end deals here and some of the sweetheart deals here should have, been t- should have been rooted out at the time. The public won't stand for it. And there's bigger money in those than you thought. The second thing is, if, I just want to make clear that, so that we understand the budget. You might misinterpret what Susan said earlier. State employee benefits are not the lion's share of the budget. State governments and the federal government are essentially cash writing, uh, check writing operations. What goes out in aid to towns, what goes out in health care costs and Medicaid and all kinds of other ways, that's where the, that's where the money goes. That's why I said that health care is the, still the biggest single item. Without you, you cannot grandfather in insurance companies that take, in, take out 20, 25 cents out of, or, or 20 cents out of every health care dollar. Uh, and as well as raising everybody else's cost in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in an inefficient system, you can't grandfather them in and bring down costs. We need systemic health care change or we're not going to fix a whole set of budgets, family budgets, small business budgets, and state budgets. I think – so it's, it's not that, um, you know, state employee health care is the biggest part of the budget. It's that it's growing faster than the rest of the budget. So when you have retiree health care growing at 10 percent, uh, state employee health care growing at 7%. You've got pension debt payments growing. You know, I don't have the percentage off the and top of my head. when you had Medicaid, head. it is the biggest part. Medicaid is the biggest part. When of, you put it all together. Yeah, absolutely. In terms of our biggest check, right, right. Actually. But the parts of our budget that are growing the fastest almost all have to do with state employee compensation. And when that's growing at 7%, your revenues are growing at 2%. Sorry to be throwing all these numbers out. It's going to crowd all of these things out, all the spending on these other things. Uh, it's public radio. We love numbers. Lots and lots of numbers. <laughs> yeah. uh, we're talking in the wheelhouse uh, today about the news of the week. Uh, one concern about the state budget is if cuts are made to municipal aid, local cities and towns will face even more of a budget crunch and cut their own services or raise local taxes. The city of Hartford is among municipalities facing big budget problems. Mayor Luke Bronin delivered a state of the city address calling the fiscal outlook dire. Here's what he told WNPR's Jeff Cohen just before the speech. It's not about what's fair or what's right or even what's in the best interests of recruiting the best uh, workers to the city of Hartford. It's simply facing the reality that we don't have nearly enough money 
to support the services we need to deliver to the people of Hartford. If, if we're looking at a bad time in the state of Connecticut, Colin, the city of Hartford, from what we're hearing from Luke Bronin, is in a bit of trouble and is going to have to make some really difficult decisions uh, to figure out how it's going to pay its bills. Again, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to say, but yeah. I mean, obviously, tell them that's true. Yeah, that is certainly <laughs> yes, true. Yes, John. And, uh, yeah. So, uh, seven point five, because uh, we like numbers. We do like I, numbers. I should have one. I don't really know any numbers actually. But so, I mean, one of the things that I think everybody understood, probably at some intellectual level, Luke Rodin understood that when he got there and got the keys to the car and popped the hood on that on this one, it was going to be even worse than he thought. One of the sort of cognitive problems of life is it's impossible to imagine something that's worse than you thought by definition. Uh, so so now he's looking at these numbers and, and I've, I've heard anecdotally about stories of people who have gone in for meetings with him about really interesting ideas and he's just said I can't, I don't, we can't have interesting ideas right now. We can't have nice things. They're too expensive. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, we really, he really does have a huge structural problem. It's one that has probably gone unattended uh, through benign neglect for many years. He's, if I understand him at all, the kind of guy who, who really would probably want to, you know, make the numbers add up or, or at least understand how significantly they don't add up. And so that's what you're hearing right now. And obviously the Lone Ranger is not riding over the hill from the state of Connecticut because of the conversation we just got through having. And, and then what do we do about cities? I mean, important cities, Suzanne, like Hartford. I mean, Bridgeport maybe is a different story. Joe Gannam saying he wants to sp- spend money and, and do new things. But Hartford, the capital city, is in a bit of a fiscal emergency. It can't come running to the state. I mean, what do we do about the city of Hartford? Well, interestingly enough, Luke Bronin was talking about pension debt the other day, too. So, I mean, it is, again, you know, you need to look at these um, sweetheart union contracts that were negotiated, you know, and in and we can't afford. And so, I mean, I just wanted to get back to one point, too, that was made earlier about the pensions. I don't think anyone's offended by a $30,000 pension. That is the av- the median pension, but it is the highest in the nation. Our median is the highest, and it's not because of that $30,000 pension. It's because of all the six-figure pensions that are dragging that median up. Um, and I think Hartford's facing the same problem. You know, when you have these systemic issues in your budget that you can't afford. And I think some one of the other problems that Hartford has is it has this bifurcated property tax where they're charging businesses more than they're charging residents, which sounds good on the face of it, but they're driving businesses out of the city and into the suburbs. And then they've, they've also got a higher property tax on high residency apartment buildings, which drives rents up. A lot of the things going on in Hartford don't make a lot of sense. But there's going to be a baseball stadium eventually. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and that'll be great. And that'll be everything. great. Quickly, but, Bill. But, but, you know, I, I just want to say, uh, as with uh, John Kasich in Ohio and Chris Christie in New Jersey, who cut, who did all their budget cuts by cutting municipals and raising property taxes in their state so that the actual tax burden on average people has risen, we have in this state, more than in those two states, we have the worst property tax system. Uh, in the country. We pay, we, we pay next to Mississippi the lowest share of the cost of local education. It kills central cities. And, and I won't do numbers, but I'll just say this. If we just stop and realize in this federal, confusing federal system with the federal government, all these state governments, local, county, now uh, hidden all these nonprofits, it's hard to top and look at our public sector budget. And our public sector budget says that if we could shift this cost of the education where it belongs and bring down property taxes across the board, we'd have land use planning. We'd have public 
uh, transportation, and we'd have magnet cities, not just magnet schools, people, places where people would choose to live and work again uh, of their own volition. And that's the goal here, and it needs structural change. And the biggest structural change is another reform that the governor dispensed with in his first few weeks, and that is property tax reform. We're the last state in the country to get it, and we desperately need it. And absent property tax reform, there is no answer for Luke Bronin. Uh, Bill Curry is a columnist for Salon.com. Suzanne Bates is policy director at the Yankee Institute for Public Policy. Our own Colin McEnroe is here. When we come back, Colin is going to describe what someone described to him as the gloom ball effect. Yet yeah, seems sort of gloomy the second half of the show. We're going to find out what he means coming up next in the wheelhouse where we live. This is where we live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up tomorrow, Barbara Bradley Haggerty. She's an award-winning journalist, former NPR religion correspondent. She's also the author of Life Reimagined, a new book aimed at helping readers navigate the trials and tribulations of midlife. So if you have questions about being in your 40s, 50s, or 60s, you can join us tomorrow as we talk with Barbara Bradley Haggerty. Find out how midlife has been treating you. That's coming up on tomorrow's program. Today, it's the Wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable. Suzanne Bates is here from the Yankee Institute for Public Policy. Bill Curry, who writes for Salon.com, our own Colin McEnroe. So, Colin, you got an email from a listener who talked about something you call the gloom ball effect. Can you, can you tell us a bit about uh, what the listener said? Well, the listener uh, said and pointed out many of the things that we've just been talking about, the state's so-called permanent uh, state of fiscal crisis, although, as we know, Ben Barnes said that's actually over, uh, although it's clearly not. <laughs> What we didn't understand was it's being replaced by something worse than a state of <laughs> permanent fiscal crisis. He didn't tell us that part. But, uh, and, and what, in fact, Luke Bronin had said in, in the State of the City speech. Uh, and then, you know, just uh, other institutions around here, Trinity College, where there's, they've talked about a serious budget crisis where there are uh, all kinds of cuts around the table that they might not have imagined. ESPN has laid off 300 people last fall. And they say, well, they'll, they'll lay off more people come next year. And the current, this, um, uh, this correspondent uh, pointed out, should some great talent earlier this year because of its budget woes and, and a stunning develop, development combined the editor and publisher jobs, which has always been part of the sort of separation of, of journalistic content and the money-making side. And, and this writer said, you know, I mean, has it always been this way or is something new going on? Have I somehow just not paid attention and I'm just tuning in now? And, and this is something that I wrote back, 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 back in 1992. February of 1992, I wrote a piece called The Gloomball Effect, which is when it, it, it's predicated on the notion that pessimism actually is contagious, you know, that um, that as as one form of bad news piles onto another, a lot of it's real and true and empirical and structural, but then it begins to diffuse uh, and spread out uh, in, into other aspects of our environment. I remember back in February of 1992 talking to a psychotherapist who said that she'd been cheered up a lot by a movie called Life Stinks. And I thought, how bad <laughs> are things? <laughs> how bad are things when life stinks make you, so you feel you right up. better about your life. So first of all, I mean, it's not a new thing. That we've been through periods like this before where, where, where the first trickle of bad news tends to kind of roll up like a snowball. We also have no snow, which is a little bit disturbing. But um, 
So anyway, yes, I I, th- I think it is a real thing, and I think the media plays a role in it too. I mean, obviously, we you know we traffic in a lot of this kind of message. Well, too. and I wanted to ask Suzanne about this because I think one of the things that we're hearing during this this campaign season is right. We've got whether it's Donald Trump saying America's not a great place anymore, we want to make it great again. Whether or not we hear local business leaders here in Connecticut consistently saying Connecticut's a bad place to do business. After a while, the pessimism does take hold. Right? It it's not a great place anymore. People get angry at each other. It's not a great place anymore. Businesses actually is there something to this contagion of pessimism that sometimes comes from Republicans, often comes from Democrats as well. Uh, absolutely. I do think that, you know, people, this, this worry, this um, fear, is it does spread. I, but I also think that the answer isn't to then, you know, pretend everything's okay. Like, oh, everything's fine. You know, that was sort of the the administration response at first, you know, stop being so negative, stop being so negative. You know, I don't think that's the right response because people are looking around and going, oh, but things are bad. Why do you keep telling me to stop being negative? The, the real response is here's what we're going to do about it and then lay out some actual things that might actually make a difference. I think Governor Malloy's willingness this year to actually face up to the fact that his two huge tax increases didn't fix the state budget has actually been really good for the state. I think it's been it's kind of given people hope that he's seeing that there's there's a problem here. I can't fix it the way I've tried to fix it in the past. I need to do something different. I think that can, you know, lead to to some hope. You know, I again, I I I I think that uh, what we often see is a projection of people's uh, lives onto their perception of the of, of politics. And uh you know, so Dan was talking earlier about some of the conservatives, you know, that the, uh, they, they worry about uh, dissent on college campuses or corruption in the IRS. The average person just worries they can't afford college and they just want a tax cut. And if you want to bring people together, solve some problems. Uh, it, we, we, are, we, we are a nation that has come to see itself as being in deeper trouble than it is. It isn't just Donald Trump. When I was working for Clinton, we would ask people if they thought crime was going up or down. Crime had just fallen in its most violent categories by the most it had ever fallen in the modern history of the country, and everybody said it was up. Uh, and, but, if, but, but if you want to change how people see the world, you have to begin to change the fundamental economic conditions of their lives, and you have to make the government work at least in the most elemental way, and that is to make it more honest, open, and efficient. That's the hidden consensus in this country, and, uh, and, and that's what we haven't paid enough attention to. Yeah, and I think you guys too. You both agree on that, Colin. Uh, last minute or so. Yeah, and, and to Suzanne's point, I think that has been one of the things that has ha, has shored up the candidacies of, of Bernie Sanders and maybe also Donald Trump. Certainly, with Sanders' case, you know, she says uh, correctly that what people want to hear is, "We know there's a problem. Here's what we're going to do about it." Uh, and Sanders, I mean, whether his ideas are practical or implementable or passable by Congress or not, he, he I mean, everybody understands exactly what he thinks the solution is. It's a little murkier with Trump what he thinks the solution is, but there's still that kind of message. Yes, there's a problem. Here's what we're going to do about it. I have some affirmative solutions to it. But, uh, but I do think the culture plays a role in it. I will just uh, end by noting that uh, there's a series of movies called The Purge. I've never seen one of them, but they're very <laughs> apocalyptic. They take place in a totalitarian near future. And there's like this thing where once a year, like all the laws are suspended so you can go kill anybody you want or uh, for 24 hours or something. Anyway, the, the latest sequel is coming out and they've retitled it The Purge, 
election night. So, <laughs> <laughs> so be afraid. Be very, very afraid. Yeah, election yeah. night. Starring NPR's Mara Lyson. Um, Colin McEnroe, host of the Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. Thank you, Colin. Thank you. Bill Curry, Democratic political analyst and columnist for Salon.com. Thank you, Bill. My pleasure. Suzanne Bates, policy director at the Yankee Institute for Public Policy and a columnist for ctnewsjunkie.com. Thank you so much, Suzanne. Thanks for having me. And thanks so much to the cameras of CTN for being here and capturing all this on videotape. Lydia Brown and Tucker Ives produce Where We Live. Kion Wolf is the technical producer. The digital editor is Heather Brandon. Katie Talarski is the executive producer of Where We Live. Thanks to intern Ben Estee. Continue this conversation online, wnpr.org slash where we live.